1: helping you find the words to create your reality in a way that's true to yourself. This is the 12th episode of my monthly feature, Our Voices, intended to give you an inside look into the life journeys of people you might not otherwise meet. We'll discuss ways to accelerate social change that levels the playing field and helps everyone live to their full potential. I encourage you to listen with curiosity and without judgment hearing different experiences of what it means to grow up, go to school, struggle, work, and live in our world. And maybe you'll see a bit of yourself in these journeys and embrace or more similar than not. Today, my guest is a bright light, figuratively and literally. Growing up in Seoul, Korea, she was introduced by her mother to the simplicity and structure of origami and to sewing her own clothing, paving the way for her to pursue a master's in architecture at the University of Pennsylvania. She became a professor of architectural design and material technology at Columbia and Parsons School of Design. Peaked by new materials technology, she started sewing solar panels to fabric as a means to harness solar energy with soft, malleable materials. When she found out her young son had asthma, her experimentation turned into necessity she was moved to find clean energy solutions that wouldn't harm the environment and children like her son. Her tenacity and commitment led her unexpectedly into entrepreneurship and a first prototype for the solar inflatable light in 2009. When the Haiti earthquake happened, she turned her studio at the Columbia University into an innovation studio to help Haiti and developed the Solar Puff, an ingenious solar inflatable light. Compelled to make a positive difference in people's lives, her work has been published in the New York Times in numerous architectural publications. Her book, Ground Rules in Humanitarian Design, is about design principles for long-term sustainability. So I was serious about her being a very bright light. Meet my friend, kindred spirit and professor turned social entrepreneur, Alice Jun. Alice, welcome to Our Voices.
2: Thank you, Molly. That was quite an introduction. I'm so, I'm so, um, I'm blushing. Thank you. <laughs>
1: I appreciate you and I thank you for joining me because I know how crazy and exciting your life is and how full it is. So I'm really gifted by your spending time with us today.
2: Well, I love what you're doing. I love the principles behind your your, uh, podcast and I was just thrilled to be part of it.
1: Well, I'm really excited for listeners to get to know you. You know, I know uh, there's another exciting entrepreneurial endeavor that you're working on now. So I'm excited for people to hear about that. But before we get there, I appreciate you sharing with listeners what it was like growing up in Seoul, how you made your way to the US, and how it's been for you living and working here.
2: So this is this is an interesting story and you know, I kind of felt alone when I was a teenager, but realizing now in hindsight that there were so many people so many um, children that that had the same experience as me growing up. And this is post-war in a Korea that was very poverty stricken, no commercialization, And to Korea's credit, uh, the government at a certain point got rid of martial law and opened up their gates to importing and exporting. And then within a matter of 10 years, they were able to uh, double the per capita per head, which is phenomenal. And um, But in the beginning of all that, um, I was born in Seoul, Korea, and my parents had no no work, um, my mother's family was basically um, disendowed by the Japanese uh, because the Japanese, when they occupied Korea, my grandfather was the president of the Bank of Korea. And the J- Japanese came in and made him kneel down in front of his whole family at his house and commanded him to um, work for the Japanese government. And he refused. and the Japanese took the house, they took everything, his money, everything. and my mother's uh, and her sisters had to um, quit school, get jobs, find you know, ways to make money so they could eat. Um, and you know, she grew up, in a very creative atmosphere with um, singing and painting and art and culture. And I think that's kind of what I inherited from her is her creativity and her imagination. And when I was little, because there were no jobs, my parents uh, immigrated on their own to the United States and I was left with my grandparents. So I was one years old and I didn't see my parents again until I was six years old and they finally sent for me years after. And um, when I met them, I was, you know, there's pictures of me in a little red Derby hat and a red blazer and a, and a kilt skirt and a little suitcase Um, and meeting my parents for the first time. And then um, living In Syracuse, in this very very white—I don't want to say it was—it was very low-income neighborhood where I was the only Asian person growing up in this in in school in elementary school, and everyone else was either white or African American. And at, at a certain point. I was always teased and uh, for being, for looking different. And at one point, I was beat up, pushed to the ground. Um, but I never, never fought back with, with, um, I never, ever fought back. And I realized back then I was, I became a fighter, but I didn't fight with my fists or, um, or with words. I decided to fight with, the light of my imagination and the light of my heart. And um, this is something that I carried with me till this day when I traveled to places like Dominica where I teach children about solar technology. And I share this story with them that no matter how hard life gets, you can never give up and that you must always fight with the light of your mind and the light of your imagination.
1: Wow. I'm a little blown away. So I need to process that. You are amazing. When you met your parents, I, I guess as you were, I guess as is with you when you were with your grandmother and realizing that your parents there weren't there. What, what did she say? How did she explain that to you?
2: Honestly, when I, when I remember those years, I just remember my grandmother and not anything else um, that, Oh gosh, we had, we had this awful, awful bathroom. That was, it was just a hole in the ground. And I was so scared of going to the bathroom there because it was just this pit. Um, And, um, in our you know the running water we didn't have running water there was literally like a small courtyard and a pump an old-fashioned pump with a steel handle that you'd have to kind of raise up and down up and down until the water came out um and it was just normal it was just normal and then now like you know, when I started my company for the solar light, it's basically for helping regions without electricity or infrastructure. And I traveled to Nigeria, I traveled to Haiti. And the amazing thing about my past experience is that it kind of came full circle when I went to Nigeria and and places like Haiti is that The children there experience the same things. You know, there's no jobs in the farmland. So everyone moves to the city to try to get jobs. They leave their children behind with the grandparents to take care of and um, in the hope of a better life, a better future. And, you know, and, and because of extreme poverty, there are these things that happen, you know. Because poverty is is so rampant, you get people that end up, for instance, using kerosene to light their world at night, which is which is a deadly and toxic fuel. They instead they can't afford, um, you know, cook stoves. So they go into the woods and cut down trees to build a fire so they can cook their food. And um everything has a chain reaction and it affects all of us all around the world because, you know, one country that ends up having to do that, you know, globally, um, there is this, this butterfly effect that um, again, you know, in multitudes and in in millions, when you multiply it across the globe, um, it becomes catastrophic and, and we've, we've suffered the consequences of that, um, which is climate change and global warming. And so, um, but I did realize when when I went to these places that the children were all so happy. Like it wasn't like, the, you know, those commercials that you see where the children are crying all the time and, you know, hungry. Um, it was amazing that, when when i went to nigeria i could smell fish burning and something cooking and um and in the air there was smoke but i i heard children laughing and running and they started following me and wanting to hold my hand and um and even though they were you know they didn't have shoes they didn't have clothes they had a big belly with a you know protrusion out of their belly button um they were still laughing and amazingly happy, and that's that's for me the the most inspiring thing about um, where we are and how grateful and how privileged we are as as a society and as as a culture here. And um, you know, it's very humbling to see that kind of... Inspiration and and happiness and um, just um, unconditional faith in in the everyday. So, um,
1: I'm- let me just ask. This is so wonderful that you um, see the positive because I and we know that we know there's, there's other things to focus on. And I was just listening to someone talk about the fact that you have in some ways, a choice of what do you see and your heart is light and your eyes are bright and you see the possibility. And I find, you know, it, it, take me back, you know, being, and I get, you know, the kids can be mean and um, you know, what it's like to be made fun of and all, but to be beat up, pushed to the ground did did you have any anger? I mean, how did you how did you process that so that you didn't have anger and that you could become this fighter in a very positive way?
2: Um, it I I have to I mean just honestly I didn't have any anger. I did have um, I mean growing up I did kind of have resentment that um, I grew up partially in the United States. And then when I was a teenager, my family decided to move back to Korea. Um, And again, they were, you know, Korea had developed uh, economically, politically, um, industrially by the time I was a teenager. And when I went back, I, I, Resented going back to Korea, which was, the, you know, for for me at that time, growing up in suburbia of upstate New York, Korea was a third world country, and all the toilets were, you know, squatty style, not regular toilets, and um, just a completely different cultural shock experience. Um, but and, and then when i went to korea i was ridiculed by the koreans because i was too american and so i couldn't fit in the korean culture you know i was kind of like a a square peg in a round hole in a way and um and i longed to 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 be back in the united states and eventually i did um, go to Penn State and then, and then University of Pennsylvania for, for my master's. But um, it, it is a, a kind of a polemic for, for many immigrants in terms of, you know, growing up in America versus your, your origin or heritage and ethnic background. and, coming to terms with how that defines you and your place in the world. And for each person, it's very different. And it has to do with, you know, how your parents raised you and, and the environment that you were subjected to or were inspired by. So um, it's, it's, it's an ongoing thing. And I, I told myself when I had my son that I would I never, ever wanted him to experience the things that I experienced when when I was in elementary school. Um, because, I, you know, I just didn't want him to experience that kind of racial bias or, or hate, really. Um, and luckily, since since we are in New York, he, he hasn't had to experience any of it in fact because we're in new york it's it's basically a melting pot of of the entire world and everyone is from a different country here and um and it's embraced and and we have come far in terms of that type of the polemic of you know understanding other people's cultures and beginnings and and um so it's you know, it, it, it's been a journey, uh, but still with what's been happening recently with with Asian hate and the shootings that went on recently. Um, that's something that the Asian hate, you know, it's it's been around, but it hasn't really been brought to the forefront until that happened. Um and it's just i think it's just something that we've all put up with for a while and we've been kind of protected because we're we're in new york which is you know culturally more more open to different uh backgrounds than let's say you know a part of north dakota or or parts of missouri um so That's been something that, you know, I think we're all thinking about as as Asians living in America, how we can. What can we do to change
1: that mindset? Yeah, thanks for going here, Alice. What um, you know, I, I am just at you're having your experience and having it seen it more public. I'm wondering, at starting with you, what goes on for you? Do you feel, you know, I've talked to a lot of, I've reached out to people, people have reached out to me, like, what's going on for you? And, you know, as an as one example, mm-hmm. having grown up exclusively in the States, it, I, it was like the fact that I actually didn't know about Asian American history. I, I mean, to be finding out and realizing that now as a full-fledged adult is – it's just kind of shocking. I mean, I'm not, you know, there's no bitterness. I don't have any of those negative emotions. It's really been largely kind of shock and in, in, mm-hmm. in somewhat, you know, that that could be the case. And I've been on a, quite a number of calls with um, Asian folks. And I think it's great to see people having conversation and connecting and, and, and just unpacking it. What does it mean and what might we want to have happen and having, some greater solidarity together. What comes up for you?
2: Um, what comes up for me is that, um, and, and you know, it, it's all tied also with with Black Lives Matter and what happened earlier last year with the with the protests, and um, it's all interconnected and. So one of my heroes is, and I, you know, people like um, Martin Luther King, um, Nelson Mandela. um, And one of the things that um, I learned about Martin Luther King had to do with how he was, kind of a failure in certain respects, but then he was a genius in other respects. Like he graduated high school when he was 16. Um, but he's the one that said that, you know, racism is really um, a sickness. It's a disease and you can't hate people for being sick. Um And I kind of, it kind of sat with me when I, when I heard that, because of the, um, you know, when you, when you see the hate and the, the kind of vitriol that some people, the reactions that some people have, and, and you wonder, you know, why why there's so much negative energy and resentment. And, and I think it's really a kind of reflection on, on themselves and, and, uh, you know, how they find emptiness or a void within themselves. And so they project it outwards um, because they, they can't deal with what's inside them. I don't know, but um Usually, when people are are open-minded with kindness and love and and generosity, um, and then you look at the world in general, and, and we are, you know, privileged to be part of that top ten percent uh, economically advantaged. Um, Infrastructurally, politically advantaged as a first-world nation, um, that all in the end, you know, all of the little stuff it doesn't matter anymore. You know, it just it just doesn't matter. And what matters is your family, the support and the love that you have with the people around you, to surround yourself with like-mindedness and that no matter what just keep fighting with your imagination the your mind and your heart and just never give up and and that you can do anything and so one of the things that happened when um i went to dominica when i going back to teaching, I'm teaching in a different way where I I was teaching at Columbia University. And now I'm, I'm teaching kids in different regions where uh, they're marginalized. Um, So the kids that were in Dominica, so they didn't have any schools because the hurricane took off all of the roofs, they were in kind of these mismatched Tents, and a lot of them had five siblings, one mother, small little one room house, and went to school for and one meal a day, which what they got in school, and um, and you know when I gave them the lights, I basically said, "Look, you know this light." When I was first making this light, a lot of people told me that I wasn't good enough and that I could never put this out into the market and that I could never be a CEO. And um, and I tell them, you know what I did? I fought with the light in my heart and my mind and I never gave up. And so I'm here today to give you this light and it gets the power, it's power from the sun, which is the most powerful source of energy that comes to the earth every day. It's enough energy to give everyone on the planet, seven billion people, enough energy to light a light bulb their entire lifetime. And so, um, and then, you know, the sun will always be with you no matter where you are in the world. It will always reach you. <clears throat> and when you charge this light by the sun, it's getting its power so that your dreams and ambitions can grow as you use it at night to do your homework. Um, and every day the sun must kiss this face so that it can charge. And they just, you know, when I tell them, when I told them, you know, this, the sun has so much, it's the most powerful source of energy that comes to the earth every day. But you know what, you know, what's more powerful than that? It's the light of your imagination. And they just start, they squeal, they start laughing, they giggle,
1: because they never thought of it that way before. Oh, so amazing I can just see you, I can see you with the light with these kids wrapped um, it's so what we need in the world, Alice and I appreciate the wisdom of of focusing where you can and I know there's a lot of negativity um, that, that people rightfully understand like it's hurtful. It, and um, yeah, I think folks may want to lash out at it. And what I'm really taking from you is to focus where you can with those whom you can influence and spread and spread that. And yeah, um, and have that be the example. Um, it's um,
2: absolutely.
1: It's amazing. You, will you share a bit how, I mean, I, you know, I think a lot of folks from a career standpoint, you know, so you've got this, you know, you got the degrees and you got the teaching, you've got all that down and you went into this social entrepreneurship business track. You know, I think a lot of folks might have, might have some dreams, but they're not, whether it's a courage thing or just a know-how thing, take listeners through how you, have evolved yourself, and what I have to tell you—I mean, among the many things I'm amazed uh, by you about you—is you're you're just you're just so game on. You're like going to make it happen, even if you really don't know how or what or I mean. Like it could be completely like barely fleshed out, but somehow you just go there, you know. And I and I want—I'd love for you to share with listeners how. You know, how how perhaps they might tap into that for themselves um, to think about, you know, a dream and to actually go for it.
2: I'm glad you asked that, Molly, because this is something that I I think about a lot when I think about kids and and how they how they can achieve their dreams and how we can we can help them step up and and lead the way to a better life. um, That. You know, because you you want your kids to be happy when they grow up. Um, that's the most brilliant thing that you can do as a parent, I think. You know, and so, um, and you know, that has to do with whatever they end up doing. You want them to love what they do, and so you kind of say to yourself, you have to start there. Figure out what you love. Figure out what gives you energy when you wake up and in, in during in the morning. What what's the first thought that comes through your mind what's the first thing that you want to do that that you have an instinct to do and and tapping into observing the world around you to to an nth degree of the, the details of what's happening around you and and in terms of entrepreneurship and, and a business what i find repeatedly over and over again with, with investors, with, with accelerators is, you know, what is the problem that you're solving? And so the other question I would ask yourselves would be, how are you making lives better? How can you help people? How can you solve an existing problem? And it's probably a solution to a problem already, but how can you problematize that solution to make it better? And what are the what are the problems of that solution that need to be fixed? And, um, and, you know, depending on someone's background and what they've learned and their expertise, you can look at a, a problem and, and imagine a solution that would fix maybe one or two different aspects of that. And then the longer you spend on that, you could probably fix the other problems to that solution. So, um, and everyone talks about grit, which I absolutely and completely concur with is that grit is abs- absolutely essential to, um, to success, honestly, because it has to do with perseverance. It has to do with not letting um, those two steps that take you back get you down you have to get up as many times as you know more times than than as you fall without a doubt and so it's it's a humbling experience and what's important with you know the people that have grit is that you know you don't let you actually embrace that humbleness you don't you don't take it as disappointment or resentment, but you kind of um, you kind of have to say thank you to that um, that doubt, that um, that falling. But as you fall, you can always lean forward, and you know it's that pivoting point where. You feel that things are getting you down, or you have setbacks, or you don't win the competition, or you get rejected by the investor, or you fail the manufacturing um, prototypes. And you know that pivoting moment is when you when when you're falling, when these you know these setbacks happen, you just kind of stop and say, "Look, <clears throat> what are we learning from this? How can we learn?" From this failure, and you know exactly what happened, and then analyze it, and then think of a new way to approach it, and it can just be bit by bit, one one percent by one percent. So there's this book I recently read called um, Atomic Habits, and it's all about how if you just try to improve one percent. By the end, you'll have improved, you know, a thousand percent. So taking each day and taking each failure as just a micro step of, of you know, it's probably, you know, perceptively a major failure or epic fail. But in in reality, and when you think about the future and then in hindsight, it's actually uh, a moment of inspiration and opportunity and invention And it's really allowing yourselves the the privilege of seeing that failure as an opportunity and that it's not a mess, but it's just incomplete. instead of calling it a mess, call it it's still it's progress. We're still working on this and um, as long as we keep working on it, it's going to get better and eventually um, we'll fix it. So it's, it's a constant process of back and forth and a dialogue. And it's also um, really important for people that are thinking about entrepreneurship, that relationships and people are so important. The kind of, connections that you have and, and understanding people and 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 getting the right people for the job to be on your team to surround yourself with like-mindedness and getting the right people on the bus is absolutely critical and it's not going to be easy um, there's plenty of talent in there but there's plenty that are not talented or not not correct for for your um, startup or business and 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 you need to go through that that challenge of, of finding um, the people that are able to hear you and not just listen, and so that's the other thing about starting. Um, and by the way, when I started Soul Light, I was I was breastfeeding, working three jobs. Um, I was teaching at Columbia Pratt and Parsons and I was starting the Solite company. I was, I, that's when I invented the solar puff. And I thought to myself, if I can get through this, I can get through anything. Because that was like the toughest part of <laughs> was like breastfeeding, not getting any sleep and going to work and taking care of the baby and I think I even was going through a divorce at that time too. But anyway, um, so,
1: well, and then let I let think. Me, also, let me just quick thing. This is, I just have to, I just have to cheer you. Like you're amazing that you've put this all out there. I, this allow yourself the privilege of seeing that failure as an opportunity, not a mess. It's progress. That's what it looks like. Um, so much insight. And you're, I get that you could just push yourself. and Like, it just seems like this wasn't an option for you. And I relate to this because this grit notion, you know, for me, it was, I got through college and nothing has been hard, like nothing has been hard since college. And people are like, what? And I just said, I just felt like I really pushed myself to know that I was capable of whatever I needed to do. And so, Alice, seriously, did you ever have true moments of doubt? I can imagine frustration oh, yeah, and depression, absolutely. but did you ever think you're going to give it up?
2: Oh, my God. I, absolutely. I go through these fleeting moments. You know, am I doing the right thing? Maybe I should give up. Um, but it's always fleeting. And then, you know, something always snaps me out of it. And, of course, you have these days where you just want to crawl up in a fetal position on the bathroom floor. And... <laughs> of course you're going to get those moments, but, you know, you just, you just get through it. Let your, let yourself have that day. And, and then the next day, you know, is always better, you know, just wake up the next day. And of course you're going to get those times where, you know, and in you Molly, you know, having a podcast and everything, you're going to get so many comments and, and you know, sometimes criticism and it's, you know, for people that care, that really care about what they do, it's it's just gut wrenching. It's like being gutted if you if you get these kind of negative comments or nasty comments, you know, it's just like, oh my God, you know, it's just completely, you know, floors you. But then, you know, you just gotta look past it because it's not about you, it's about them. It's not, it's not about you. You just keep doing what you're doing. You just keep you know focusing on what inspires you. Because if it inspires you, it'll inspire someone else. And um, you know, if it, it, it sparks incitement, it, it's it's contagious. So um and you have to you have to think you know the the whole chemistry of the universe and chi and you know God and uh, all of these different um, cultural um, names for for life force or the universe you know it. There are things that you don't, you can't explain, but I really do believe in energy and that you know, the more positive energy that you give out to the world, the more positive energy will come back. And if you think about physics and like even quantum physics, it's the principles are basically the same. So, um, why not? I mean, there's nothing to lose.
1: Ah, uh, you are a genius. Um, I I really, I don't, so much, but one particular area, this notion of people first, you mentioned find people who hear you and not just listen. And the key to finding people who are like-minded at the same time, embracing the disagreement that is what drives innovation. So just share some thoughts on on, on those two areas, please.
2: So um, when... <laughs> Oh God. So when I was first starting, you know, you don't really know what you're doing. It's, it's, you know, you really don't know what you're doing until you've done it for like, you know, 10 years. You know, the past architects when I was teaching architecture, Lou Kahn, Louis Kahn, very famous architect said that you can't be an architect until you've done like 60 buildings or until you're at least 65. Um, And so for entrepreneurs, I guess you know they, there's a saying that investors like entrepreneurs that have gone through a couple couple of startups already but um my first my first beginning, you know i just I was so grateful that anyone wanted to work with me when i when I did my first invention. I just took anyone, and it was you know a very hard lesson because I realized that a lot of people say they're going to do something. And they either don't know how to do it or they have a distorted perception of, of what they're capable of. There always comes a point where there's this, this um, crack in, in the surface of, of the relationship where things are, re- are revealed. And then the crack gets bigger and bigger and you see more through that reveal of what they're capable of and what they're not capable of and i would just say i signed on with with someone that just wasn't the right partner for for me in the beginning and i signed on with a lawyer that just wasn't the right lawyer for me the lawyer would say you know you're you're a child you're not a ceo and you need you need to hire a real ceo you need to get this person or that person and you know you don't know what you're doing and and um you know things like that like i experienced um early on and and now you know at six lawyers later i have you know i'm pretty happy with the lawyers that i have now and same thing with the accountants it's a matter of being able to peel your eye to and observe what's happening and why it's happening and then you move on to the next and you've learned from from that failure and how can you prevent that from happening the next time. So and there's no no better teacher. There's no better teacher than time.
1: You, we need to have a book of Alice quotes. I mean I'm I'm just there's just too many for me to even share. I can't even share them all. Aww. Um are you're uh, you're amazing. Uh but just so folks who may not have a chance to look at the website would you give them just a, a quick snapshot of so light and if they're interested where they can go because i love oh. mine. i love mine
2: oh yay um, so it's dot designcom and our our first my first invention was the solar puff which is a, a flat pad origami solar light and um, completely s- solar powered but it's designed well so that it looks beautiful on a table or or a campsite and it's um been exhibited at at um at MoMA in in an exhibition called good design that does good and it's also sold at the MoMA design store as well as um our website and um I was inspired by origami balloons as a little kid growing up doing um, my mother taught me origami like every other kid. And I realized that the solar light, when I realized that for disaster relief, you really wanted to be able to pack as many as possible in a carton. Whereas the other um solar lights on the market were hard, heavy, hard plastic, not recyclable. And so just in that solution of of, you know, you know, understanding that problem of being able to ship a ton of stuff quickly, it had to be light, it had to flat pack. And um, that began, the the problem solving and flat pack and origami go hand in hand. It's basically the whole concept of how a fold becomes structure. And so it seemed like the perfect vehicle for designing the solar lantern and it easily pops open into a beautiful cube. And when you don't need it, or when you're traveling, it just flat packs, and you don't even know that it's it's in your in your bag. So basically, that that whole um, design came from this need to have many, many different many units being able to be packaged in a carton for for quick deployment and. Nowadays, you know, just the trend in material technology is everything is getting lighter, faster, and smarter. So just understanding that the whole idea of, of um integrating solar panels with thin film substrates was something that I started earlier on in my in my research when I was teaching material technology. And so um that just was something that i had been developing and then when the haiti earthquake happened and we learned about you know how kerosene was killing so many kids and and the aspect of of living on three dollars a day and they were still spending 30 percent of their income on kerosene was the clincher for me and that's when i decided that I was a social entrepreneur because in the grand scheme of things, after visiting all of these places and really seeing how there is an interconnectedness between extreme poverty, our climate and our health in, in countries far beyond Haiti and Nigeria is this, um, this issue that really, capitalism is is actually good for regions like this and that the, the best way to create change is to create jobs. And so that way they can spend that money that they would be spending on kerosene, they could spend it on food or their own clothing or kids' clothing. Um, and Instead of taking handouts, basically, because I saw a lot of that, that, you know, the UN or Save the Children would come in and just, just um, the whole model of just giving and then taking off is, is not a sustainable model, but it's really how you can help through long term and, and, and it has, you know, it's all tied with, with creating jobs and an economic, economic stability, as well as political stability.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Cheer for that. Uh, Alice, would you like to share a little bit about your current passion or your current newest passion? I guess I should say. Yeah.
2: I, um, I, you know, I was in lockdown and this is like over a year ago now. I can't believe it. It's been a year And I just saw, like, I come from a family of doctors, first of all. My uncle, my cousins, my aunt, um, they're they're all doctors. And I remember they used to come home and they had these kind of dents on their faces from surgical masks. And then watching, you know, being in New York, I'm, I'm between Beth Israel and NYU Hospital and Bellevue. And seeing all the masks being thrown away, 100,000 masks a day, and being a material specialist, I knew that that is gonna do huge amounts of damage to our environment, especially the oceans, because there's, there's polypropylene in those masks. Basically, it's plastic. And some of those masks, there was a study in 1917 where they found trace elements of formaldehyde in in those surgical masks. And that's why uh, all these healthcare workers were getting contact dermatitis. And so if, if you're wearing them for a long period of time, there's all these rashes. N95, they only work if if you get an airtight seal. And in order to get the airtight seal, you have to have tremendous pressure on your face to... Um, keep it airtight, and that was causing—that's causing these hideous wounds on all the doctors' faces. And I just said, you know, this is the 21st century; we cannot let this happen. And then you do the research—you know, what the mask hasn't changed in a hundred years. Basically, the basic design is still the same. Well, we have and um, you know, we have new materials now. Why can't we redesign the mask and make it better, more comfortable, and and visible for for people? Because doctors were putting pictures of themselves on their coats because they were all masked up, and the patients couldn't recognize the doctors, <laughs> and so, um, and you know, the deaf couldn't communicate. Because you're covering the mouth, they couldn't, you know, it's dangerous if if, if there's an emergency and you can't communicate and you're deaf. My brother actually worked for Samsung and we were talking and I said, you know, what about a transparent mask that's also an N95 and let's, let's, we should get rid of the ear loops because how long have we been wearing those ear loops? It's about time that we, we tried something new I turned my kitchen into a lab. I had tin foil everywhere. I had silicone bits, plaster, resin everywhere. Molly, it looked like a meth lab, honestly. But it wasn't a math lab. It was, it was, it was a silicone mask lab. And I I made like 86 prototypes. I did a hundred different filter prototypes using bamboo silk and cotton and and PLA which is a corn fiber so i i i i'm very proud i actually did the testing with MIT labs and the first filters that i that, that i tested failed but i learned from those failures and then i did it again and then again and again and then by the by the fourth or fifth time i got 95 to 90 9% filtration efficacy, which is without using any polypropylene, only using natural fibers. And um, yeah, and so so, our masks are going to be, are, are transparent, they're silicone, they're soft, flexible, and they have an adhesion material on the perimeter so that it sticks right to your face and doesn't require ear loops or a head harness. And the technology for the adhesion is very similar to beauty patches and scar tissue healing tape, which adheres to your skin and helps it heal. Um, Like there's beauty patches that are anti-wrinkle and there's even now, you know, there's new... Patches for acne where you put it on all night and then the morning the acne disappears. Well, we're, we're taking that technology and hybridizing it with, with the mask. So you're kind of hopefully getting a little bit of a skin pampering as well as protection with with the filtration for, for the CS95 mask. And we're, we're under production now and we're going through injection molding and we've had a couple of failures and there's been delays but again i'm just you know of course there have been times where you know i told my team do you see the blood splattered on the wall behind me well that was that was after my conversation with the manufacturers this morning like it's, it's that intense when, when we're trying to hash out issues of, you know, how to fix problems or, or delays. And, um, but you just, you know, you just have to have faith. You just keep going and just, you know, think one, one win, one, 1%, let's get 1% better today. And then tomorrow, let's get another 1% better. And that's, that's what keeps you going. And and you're, you know, if you can just do that, you'll be able to do anything. And honestly, I tell people, you know, like if I can do this, you can do this. Seriously. Because, you know, I'm I'm just a poor girl from Korea that had the privilege of having an education. And and I just think, you know, if I can do it, anybody can do it, honestly.
1: You are an innovator, a humanitarian, a leader extraordinaire. I'm I'm blown away, and um, I know listeners are wondering. So, the website for her latest invention, see us. So it's s e e u s hyphen ninety five dot com, and stay tuned. More changing of the world. Oh my gosh, Alice, we could go on and on. I'm going to wrap with two questions. One is, what do you wish for your son?
2: Oh, I, I just wish for him to be um, whatever he ends up doing in life. That he loves that, that he feels passionate about it. That's what I really want for him. Um, and you know, if 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 he's happy doing whatever he ends up doing, I'm happy.
1: Yay, yay! I love that. And lastly, um, you've been so generous and open. Uh, What was it like to share your story today?
2: Um, It was so refreshing to talk to you, Molly. You're so easy to talk to. You're an amazing um, interviewer. And I just, um, I love talking to you. I could go on talking to you forever. And in fact, I feel like, you know, I'm going to call you one of my best friends now because (laughs) this has been, you know, well, you know, I felt that the first time I met you and um now that i'm part of doing what you love to do i I have so so much respect and awe and wonder for you and and what you're doing so um thank you for for asking me to be part of it
1: thank you thank you it's all back at you you know i'm an upstate new New York, an uh, upstate New York or two from, from Rochester. And I have to tell you the first time we went to Asia, cause we went back to Taiwan to see grandparents and there was a hole in the ground and we were looking at my mom. She's like, you gotta go, you gotta go. So <laughs> I, I, uh, I can relate. Alice, uh, you know how to reach me. I'm, um, I'm, I'm in awe. I'm honored. I'm privileged. Oh, Molly. really been a gift. So um, you are a part of the solution for this world, for sure, my friend. And you know how to reach me. So don't hesitate uh, when I can be useful. And uh, we will definitely be in touch. You take good care.
2: Thank you. Bye. Ciao, ciao. Love you. Bye.
1: Love you too, Alice. Amazing. Okay. My thought for the week from Alice. Be a fighter, not with your fists or words, but rather fight with the light of your mind, imagination, and heart. And that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in. Please be part of the solution and kindly share this show. Amplify Alice's voice. Reflect on your top takeaways. And know I'm cheering for you to be who you are and say what needs to be said so that you and those around you have a shared reality, essential to make the best decisions, execute with speed, and achieve outstanding outcomes at work and in life.
0: Thanks for listening to Say It Skillfully with host Molly Chang. Join us again for more ways to say it skillfully next Tuesday, 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Follow Molly on LinkedIn and Twitter.